We had a lot of great questions today. We had a question starting out about the dangers of refined uh, seed oils, especially non-soybean-based oils and canola oil. And I was talking about why those uh, oils are very dangerous for us and are probably contributing uh, largely to the diabetes, obesity, and even uh, potentially Alzheimer's dementias epidemics um, that we're seeing. We had a, a question about the best ways of getting out of chronic stress, uh, being stuck in fight or flight mode. Uh, recognizing sort of when that's happening and, and techniques to get out of that. We talked about um, trauma and how to overcome that using sort of trauma-based uh, therapies. Uh, and we had a caller that talked about breaking up with a girlfriend that potentially had borderline narcissistic personality disorder after three years um, and how to focus on yourself and get over the shame and guilt uh, about being in sort of an abusive relationship. Um, talked about the importance of sort of um, uh, grief and therapy to address that as well. And then we had a final question about obviously uh, improving working memory and forgetfulness and uh, behavioral strategies to address that. Hey everyone, welcome to Maximus Colin Radio Show episode 23. Super excited to have you all. We got a nice conglomeration of platforms that we're on. We're actually going to experiment with TikTok live today. Uh, and this is the second week in a row that we've got Twitter spaces going. So it's uh, fun to try out all these different platforms. So wherever you're joining us, uh, great to have you. A special shout out to all of our folks on Discord in particular. Uh, looks like we've got a couple folks joining us. Um, so as always, if you're not familiar with the show format, we do a weekly call and radio show Q&A. So I'm here to answer any and all questions that you have around mind, body, masculinity, uh, and increasingly relationships, because uh, I think that's pertinent to, to all of those things. In fact, I did a Twitter poll the other day asking about sort of the foundational health behaviors where I was talking about obviously diet, exercise, and sleep are the consensus sort of three core foundational health behaviors. Uh, but in terms of uh, the other two, you know, I, I argue focus is the fourth health behavior because if you uh, are constantly distracted, you uh, can't do any of those other things and you waste too much time to go take care of your diet, exercise, and sleep. Uh, but in terms of the fifth health behavior, I kind of put out a different, a couple different options in terms of, uh, you know, mindfulness. Breath work is a common one, um, but the number one response that people had was actually uh, uh, sex and intimacy uh, as being the kind of fifth core foundational health behavior, and it obviously helps with all the other ones in terms of sleep, et cetera. Um, so uh, happy to talk about uh, any and all of that stuff, uh, especially you know relationships, because it, it is fundamental to health. Oh, we have a question from Discord. I'm curious about the deleterious effects of non-soybean, i.e. canola vegetable oils in cooking. Tons of info out there why current soy consumption levels are bad for men. Would love for this to be explored in a future episode. All right, awesome question. Um, so the, the question is about the negative or deleterious effects of uh, vegetable oils, not including soybean oil in cooking. Um, so yeah, the, the negative effects go above and beyond the particular negative effects of soy. Um, you know, it's, there's kind of a running meme, including one that I promote on Twitter about sort of the, the negatives of soy, just to, just to be clear in terms of the research, uh, uh, soy consumed in small amounts by men is probably not deleterious or harmful. Um, one of the things that we always say is that the dose is the poison. Um, and so, you know, it always depends on how much you're taking there. There is a published case study though, of someone who's drinking three quarts of soy milk a day and actually developed gynomastia or male breast tissue as a result of that. 
Now, obviously, three quarts a day is a lot, but that was done under the assumption that it's safe and it's just like with any other sort of alternative nut milk. That's not, not the case. I would not consume it in high dosages. If you have a little bit of tofu every or edamame every now and then, it's probably fine. Now, soybean oil is very commonly used uh, along with peanut oil, canola oil, and a bunch of other vegetable oils. Um, and it's not because of the phytoestrogens that's the problem. Um, the problem is that these are not very heat-stable oils, and they're typically used in cooking because they're very cheap, uh, readily available, and obviously they're they're easy to fry things with. Um, but there's kind of a, a compelling research that this may be actually contributing to a lot of the obesity and diabetes epidemic uh, that we've been seeing. There's really like a particular uptick basically since 1980 um, when sort of the new dietary guidelines came out uh, in terms of the American health. The chronic disease is rampant. 70% of people are overweight or obese. 88% of people have a metabolic abnormality. And um, one possible explanation for that, it's, all, it's always hard to understand what's happening at a population level, so we can't say it's definitive, is there's been a big change in the oils that we use. People back in the day used to cook with animal fat, which is pr uh, primarily lard, which comes from pigs, tallow, which comes from beef, uh, and ghee, which is uh, clarified butter that um, also comes from dairy. And back in the day, this was kind of the staple that people used. And it's essentially been uh, replaced, uh, with the exception of maybe butter and olive oil, uh, almost entirely by these highly refined vegetable oils or seed oils. The, the, the main difference is that, you know, these have to be sort of oftentimes chemically extracted. Um, so, for instance, canola oil comes from a plant called the rapeseed that's been kind of rebranded as canola because rapeseed is obviously not a very sexy term. Um, but, uh, if you ever look at the plant, it almost looks like wheat. Uh, it, it, it's not a lot of oil to extract unless it's kind of chemically extracted by chemicals like hexane, which are often like lingering in, in the oil. So it's kind of like polluted, uh, just from the extraction process in and of itself. But they're also volatile oils in that when they're used for high heat cooking, um, uh, they, they chemically sort of change, uh, and, uh, can cause, uh, the creation of sort of cancer causing, elements and so particularly like a good example of this is you know uh, potatoes uh, when fried the combination of both the oil and the potatoes um, uh, results in acrylamides um, which are known to be sort of cancer causing um, so uh, that's a big reason for it and there's a bunch of research that that suggests in particular these refined seed oils are uh, contributing to sort of the diabetes epidemic What's a remarkable statistic, and I didn't even believe this the first time I heard it, but I looked at the research, is that 20% of calories that Americans are consuming are coming from vegetable oils. So literally a fifth of the calories that you take in are from the oils itself, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, because you, nobody obviously is thinking, like sitting there guzzling canola oil, uh, but when it's sort of heavily fried or it's cooked so much in it, uh, it's, it's kind of slathered in it. And obviously the fattiness adds to the taste and texture of what we're consuming. Um, and so you end up almost like inadvertently consuming large portions of these vegetable oils. Um, and yeah, for the average person, it's average American, it's consume, uh, contributing to like 20% of your calories. Um, the negative health consequences of this are, are pretty apparent. There's a bunch of uh, studies that are showing that basically um, associational data, which is imperfect, but that uh, groups that consume the highest amount of vegetable oils uh, had like 62% higher uh, rates of death 
Um, there's a bunch of mice study where they feed them vegetable oil um, and it contributes to pretty significant weight gain um, and dysregulations in terms of their metabolic and uh, lipid profile. Um, and so, and the other concern is in terms of the effects that it's having on our brain health, there's also associational data, the consumption of these vegetable oils, it's not just making you fat and messing with your, your lipids and your sugars, uh, but it's maybe contributing to early onset Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera. This is, you know, this is emerging research. I wouldn't say it's definitive, but directionally, I would say the data is trending in a bad direction. Uh, it, and I, I certainly don't think it's a good idea to be sort of a guinea pig. The, the sort of traditional or Lindy approach um, is if you think about it, these oils have only existed in the last, let's say 50 to 100 years. So in the span of human history, we've never cooked with these oils ever because nobody was using hexane to extract you know, oil out of seeds. It's a very processed modern technology. The only time we ever cooked with fat was exactly what you could scrape out of an animal hide uh, or maybe, you know, um, cold uh, expeller press from olives. So I would say the two oils that are exceptional that don't come from animals are um, olive, avocado, and coconut. The problem with all three of those um, and, and non-clarified butter um, is that they're not high heat cooking oils. Olive, in my opinion, um, is better to drizzle on salads. Avocado oil can actually be heated to high temperatures. It has a 500 degree smoke point. So that's um, a legitimate choice. Just make sure that your olive oil and your avocado oil are legit. A lot of them are actually fake. Um, they're adult, or at least they're adulterated with the cheap canola oils. So buy from trusted sources. Costco and Trader Joe's in particular uh, tend to do a good job sourcing their oils and making sure that they're legit. So those are good places to get them from. But I'm a, I'm a much bigger advocate of uh, cooking with animal fats um, because they are uh, much more stable. They're higher in saturated fat and saturated fat is just much more stable than the unsaturated fats, um, which can get very distorted um, from high heat cooking. Also, the um, vegetable oils and refined seed oils are very high in what are called omega-6 fatty acids. And, you know, our modern day ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 has become very unbalanced. Ideally, you want a one-to-one -one ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. The problem is, uh, you know, Americans are probably consuming one to 10 in terms of one part omega-3, which we barely eat because Americans don't eat very much fish, which is the primary source of omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, but they're getting a ton of omega-6 from all of these uh, refined vegetable oils, including corn oil, soybean oil, sunflower oil, etc. The other thing too is it's not just the, cook, the, the food that you fry your food in, it's ubiquitous in uh, packaged foods, right? If you're buying chips or things, they're often cooked in these oils. So I would encourage everyone to read the labels of the food that you're eating. The, the best thing is to not eat uh, foods that have ingredient labels, but if you do, um, uh, overwhelmingly, they use sort of cheap oil, sunflower oil, etc. cetera, uh, whenever they're, they're you know, uh, uh, frying or cooking sort of things or they need to add fat in order to improve the, the texture, the mouthfeel of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, these fats basically easily, easily oxidize, especially when they're sitting in their package for who knows, months to years, uh, and they add all these preservatives to keep them shelf stable. The problem is oils go rancid, right? If, if you've ever just kept oil around in your kitchen, uh, you know, after like a year or so, it starts to smell bad. It starts to oxidize. And the reason is um, they're high in 
um, these particular fatty acids like linoleic, linolenic acid that are just not stable uh, as opposed to uh, a saturated uh, fatty acid, like a steric acid that you find in like a, a cocoa butter or shea butter. Those tend to actually last uh, much longer. Um, the other problem is like, you know, restaurants have no laws around how long um, they can they can reuse oils or when they need to throw it out. So when you're buying fries from a restaurant or anything that's sort of deep fried, it's often been fried, refried, and that oil has been sitting there for who knows how long. Um, it could be bubbling away for days, weeks, months, uh, uh, maybe even years. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very sad fact that oils are basically the most consumed uh, food in the world after rice and wheat. Uh, we more, produce more of these than poultry, beef, cheese, and butter combined, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, but you know, it's, it's sort of a sad fact that meat has gotten the bad rap. Everyone thinks red meat is unhealthy when I think the evidence by far is that it's these refined seed oils that are unhealthy. So what's the takeaway from all this? One, don't try to avoid uh, refined seed oils whenever possible. When you're cooking at home, use animal fat, uh, tallow, ghee, uh, butter if it's at lower temperature, or use avocado oil um, as sort of a backup. Um, so number two, if you're eating out at restaurants, uh, obviously avoid anything fried. Fried food is just generally not good for you, but because they're fried in these refined seed oils, you definitely want to avoid it. Uh, and third, uh, ask the restaurant uh, to cook it in butter. Uh, if they can, they should have butter around. They don't necessarily always have like tallow or ghee, but every restaurant should have butter. Um, and it's always a better choice than whatever they're frying their or cooking their stuff with. Even if they're pan searing your fish, uh, you don't want it seared in canola oil because uh, it's not sort of healthy for you. Um, but yeah, eat at home. I mean, that's that's actually the number one reason I don't eat out all the time is because unless you're, you know, you know the restaurant, you trust the people. And, you know, even when you request it, who knows if they're actually following through on what you're what you're asking for. It's always easier and safer to cook as much at home, but you can obviously take some precautions. One, one useful hack that I actually you know, tell people all the time, including on Twitter, is if you're out and about and you can't cook at home, um, there's almost always a McDonald's in almost a, a, any American city, and you can actually order the beef patties off the a la carte menu. So it's not on the menu, it's, it's not written anywhere, but if you ask the cashier, I, I just wanna order the quarter pound meat patties off the a la carte menu, um, they can do it for you. Sometimes they'll be confused. Just tell them it's on the a la carte menu or tell them to go get their manager, but they'll figure it out. They usually sold for a buck 50 each for a quarter pound. So you can literally get a pound of cooked beef for $6.51 here in California, including tax, which is mind-blowingly cheap. Uh, and the, the unique thing about that is because the burgers are like 70% protein, 30% uh, fat by weight, um, they don't need to be cooked in any oil. In fact, they're not cooked in anything because it basically is just cooked in its own fat. So they're one of the few foods that there's no frying that's actually happening. It's literally beef, salt, and pepper. Now the beef is not grass-fed, organically sourced, etc. But you know, uh, for being out and about and not being cooked in any refined vegetable oil uh, and being zero carb and relatively affordable, I actually think it's the best bang for your buck uh, health health food. I would actually, I know it's crazy to say that there's health food at McDonald's, but it's the only thing on the menu. It's one of the only things on the menu I'd argue is healthy. Um, that you can get because it avoids the refined seed oils that we talked about. So it's a great travel hack tip. Uh, and I use it all the time. I post sometimes when I get the patties from McDonald's. Uh, so I'd encourage you guys to follow suit. Hey Cam, I broke up with my girlfriend today because I believe she has BPD or NPD. 
and the relationship has been very toxic after almost three years. Any advice for focusing on myself again or advice for dealing with shame slash guilt after being in a toxic, abusive relationship? Um, yeah, man. Well, sorry to hear about the breakup. It's it's never fun to do that. Um, and especially if it's someone you've been with for three years, that's a pretty significant chunk of your life. So um, even if it is, um, I don't like to use the word toxic. I feel like it's overused. But even if it was a, a you know, non-healthy relationship, um, you know, it's a pretty significant part of your life. And it's, you know, you wouldn't be with a person if it wasn't providing you with something. Um, so, I, you know, I think the important thing is just recognize that and do a little bit of mourning and grieving. You know, I actually talk a lot about grief. Um, and I talk about how it's important for men to grieve um, above and beyond someone dying. You, you don't need to go to a funeral to grieve. But I think after you go through any sort of um, uh, difficult experience in which you experience loss, whether it's a breakup, losing a job, maybe even moving on, like moving to a new city, um, it is useful to sort of grieve and mourn those things. Um, and I think it's a dangerous thing to suppress grief because if you suppress the lows, if you suppress the negative emotions that you're feeling, you also are suppressing the positive feelings um, that you're experiencing. And so you become this very flat affect kind of dude because you're, you're essentially not allowing yourself to feel anything. We almost have this illusion that we can suppress, selectively suppress just negative emotions without suppressing the positive. But I, I actually have a contrarian point of view that's not true. Um, there's a great story from Francis Weller. He talks about going to um, a village in Burkina Faso and he's um, talking to a woman who's just so happy. And, um, you know, he was just remark, remark, uh, found it remarkable how much joy this person was radiating. It was kind of infectious. And he asked her, he's like, what's, what's the secret to your happiness? And she looked at him and she said, I cry a lot. And he was so struck by that. He's like, well, what do you mean? I, you know, I'm asking you about, you know, being happy. And you're like, she's like, I cry. He's like, yeah, because I'm able to fully express my emotions. I can feel the depths of my sadness, but I can also feel the, the heights of my, my satisfaction as well. And I, I think that's actually a very valuable lesson that men can learn from women. I'm not saying you need to sit there and weep all the time, but I'm saying that, you know, if you had a significant breakup of, of three years, even if it's for the best, there's some ritualistic mourning that you need to do whether or not you cry i do think it's useful to do that so for instance if you got stuff from from you know that she's left over from your place don't have it laying around kindly and if it's you know appropriate uh you know return it to her if you have sort of love letters or you know mementos uh unless you want to keep it for nostalgic value and you be you're 100 sure you want to move on you know, sometimes it is sort of a, a nice ritual to like, you know, burn these things and, and move on. Not in any like bitter way, but it can be obviously in like a, you know, positive crematory way. And sometimes going through the ritual, doing that with friends and family. I do think grief is better as a communal process. That's why we get together as funerals uh, is a useful thing. So that's actually the first and foremost thing is just give yourself some self some space to mourn the loss of this relationship. Second of all. You mentioned that you suspected your ex-girlfriend had BPD or NPD. So for the folks that aren't aware of these uh, psychological acronyms, BPD is borderline personality disorder and NPD is narcissistic personality disorder. So borderline personality disorder is kind of a dramatic, erratic, uh, cluster B kind of personality disorder in which um, oftentimes the person will vacillate between extremes of sort of love and hate. 
So these are really dramatic, really draining relationships. They're often very fun, exciting, uh, you know, uh, sexually engaging kind of uh, relationships, but also screaming, fighting, kicking, abusive, uh, threatening to commit suicide is often, you know, a common thing that people with BPD do uh, in order to not only get attention, but also to maintain uh, someone in a relationship if they're threatening to break up with them. And that's why they can be um, very difficult uh, to handle. Narcissistic personality disorder um, you know, is obviously someone who has a deep sense of insecurity and it sort of inflates their uh, self-confidence artificially in order to make up for that. Um, and there's obviously a self-centeredness that comes along with that. So I don't know if your ex-girlfriend had BPD or NPD that was formally diagnosed, but if you're obviously seeing the signs and symptoms of that, um, whether or not it's BPD or NPD, let's just call it, you know, she's exhibiting narcissistic behavior or unstable uh, sort of, uh, you know, erratic uh, emotions and behavior, um, then it sounds like it was the best thing for you to get out of that. Um, I, I actually would encourage you to consider going into therapy to process maybe some of the lingering effects of that. If you sort of felt, you know, there's some trauma or manipulation that came out of being in that relationship. Um, cause if she truly was some severe on sort of the spectrums of both of those conditions, it's not an easy thing to deal with. It doesn't mean you need to be in therapy forever, but it may not, may not be a bad idea for uh, at least a few weeks or months to just process what the hell happened to you. And more importantly, this is the lesson thing is, uh, let's suppose that's true. Why were you in a relationship for three years with someone who's this pathological? So I have a, a colleague, uh, Dr. Jonathan Shedler, who has a great point. He says, basically, people date to the level of their own pathology, meaning it's uh, no offense here. I obviously don't know you, but it's very unlikely if your partner had true borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and you are a, a sweet angel of, of perfect mental health. You stay in that relationship because you probably have some issues that are fucking you up with all due respect. And you've decided to settle for someone who's pathological as well. Now you may not have the same issues. Maybe you're not borderline. Maybe you're not narcissistic. But maybe you got your own shit going on, right? I don't know if you have low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, and you decide the best I can do is to be with someone who's severely personality disordered. So if that's the case, you need your own therapy, period. Regardless of that relationship, you got to deal with your own shit that makes you willing to be in a, quite frankly, uh, lower value relationship and to settle with someone who's obviously not good for you. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you should never be with someone who has a mental health issue. Um, there's there's a reasonableness. First of all, like probably a quarter to a third of the population as, as an active uh, depressive or anxiety uh, episode at any given time. But that's very different. Those are what are called access one disorders. Those are mood disorders, right? You may have a depressive episode where you're in a funk for a few weeks and you get over it, but borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, that's not a mood disorder. That's a personality disorder. That means it's kind of a long lasting pattern of behavior that's going to be with them probably for the rest of their lives, um, even though it can improve with uh, some therapies like DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. But they're going to be who they are. And so you're selecting that person who has uh, pathological personality traits. And that's probably, if you look into the mirror, reflective of your own pathology. So I think this is the time to kind of embrace the shadow, look into the darkness a little bit and say, okay, what am I doing to attract this person? And, and uh, more importantly, stay. Then that, that's, by the way, the lesson there. And that's why the three years is actually the red flag to me. It's not the BPD or NPD. Sometimes, you know, you could run across a really attractive woman and 
you know, you're getting a little bit more of the, the, the positive side of the, you know, they're charming, superficially charming from the narcissism. They're very exciting and sexually engaging from the, the borderline. And so the first couple of weeks may find, you might find it to be very like an exciting whirlwind romance. Uh, but obviously as you sort of catch the bad end of that, you know, most normal healthy people would be like, eh, you know, she's, she's kind of crossing the line of the hot crazy spectrum, if you will. Um, and this is obviously not a person that I want to be in a long-term sustainable relationship with. Most people who are healthy and non-pathological would walk away. You did not. And so that's worth exploring with a therapist to figure out why you decided to stay. And most importantly, what, what are, what's going on with you that you're basically finding someone who's at your level of pathology, even if it's a slightly different level of pathology. So let's talk about the last part of your question, which is, okay, how do I deal with sort of the guilt and the shame? Now, I'm obviously very frank with you in terms of like, you know, being real uh, in terms of this situation, but it doesn't mean you should beat yourself up about it, or I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to shame you about it. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. And I think it's actually very important for a therapist in the context of a caring relationship. Because if we were doing therapy, I would tell you the same thing. I'd be like, look, you can't, you can't be with someone who's messed up for three years without you being messed up yourself. And that's not to slap you in the face emotionally. It's to be honest and authentic and give you that feedback that, hey, look, there's something going on. But I'm going to be here with you to help you through that shit uh, so that you can work through it and you can emerge out of the, the, this sort of uh, conundrum. And so you can, you can be healthy and you can next time attract someone who's healthier. Um, so, you know, to me, it's like it's, there's no point of beating yourself up for the past. I think what you have to do is avoid the tendency to be in denial about it to go blame the other person completely. Look, it's half her fault, but it's half your fault too. It's your responsibility. It takes two to stay in a relationship, even if she was threatening you. Um, and so you gotta own that and say, okay, uh, you know, this, this is at least half my doing. Um, but fortunately, you know, hopefully, you know, you're kind of a young guy, you have um, op new opportunities ahead of you, but now is the time to be like, okay, let me learn from this lesson. Um, fix my shit that contributed in me making sort of this uh, choice and find someone who's better for me. So, um, you know, I, I think it's useful to be in a sort of therapeutic framework, whether it's ACT or maybe even a DBT yourself. I would actually consider, I would encourage you, even though I don't know you very well, to consider what it's called a third wave kind of therapy. Third wave therapies are kind of mindfulness-based therapies. The two preeminent examples are ACT and DBT. Um, that are very helpful for emotional regulation, right? Because if she's got some emotional regulation issues, you probably do too, as would be my guess. And those types of therapies, I think, are particularly good for helping guys um, deal with very difficult, negative, strong emotions. Um, and to do it in a way that incorporates techniques like diffusion, mindfulness, uh, and kind of like being able to get into touch with sort of your observer self so that you can watch, for instance, the shame and guilt arise from that part of you that likes to beat yourself up or is insecure about yourself um, and not necessarily act on it by crawling into your cave, not going out, not doing anything, right? That may be your automatic tendency, uh, but you can, uh, you know, create a little bit of space using the techniques from these therapies um, in order to not default to sort of automatic behavior and obviously pick a better path going forward. So that's my recommendation, but sorry to hear about that. It's, I mean, it's, it's never fun to go through that, but look, here's the good news. Uh, it sounds like you got out of a bad thing and 
you got to crawl your way out of this hole a little bit, but you're in a good place of, you know, you did, you, you made a healthy choice for yourself um, in getting out of something that was obviously not serving you, not serving your life and not serving your values. So as hard as it is to kind of be at the bottom of the trough, I, I only see up uh, an upward trajectory for you. Um, and if you do the work that I'm telling you to do, which is to do the morning and grief to get over this, uh, get your ass in therapy to figure out, you know, do a retrospective on what you just went through. And third, fix your own shit that contributed to this. I actually think I'm very optimistic that you can make some positive changes for yourself because you already have. You took the first step. And after taking the first step, the second and third are always easier. Hey, Sean, thanks for the question about best ways to get out of chronic stress stuck in fight or flight mode. There's, there's two main um, sort of systems in the body uh, one is called um, the sympathetic nervous system, the SNS, which is associated with fight or flight or freeze. It's the third actually part of it that people don't appreciate. Um, and I actually think it's underrepresented because my, I have a whole theory around the doom scrolling or infinite scrolling that people are doing on social media that, that make us so addicted is actually a, a hijacking of the freeze response. When we're stressed, we turn to our phones and devices in order to alleviate the stress. Um, we're obviously not fighting. We're obviously not flighting or running away uh, from like, you know, an angry bear that's creating, you know, a, a fear inducing situation, but we're dealing with our stress by engaging in a freeze freeze response. When you're hyper focusing on your phone, um, it's almost like you're losing track of time. Uh, you're, you're kind of uh, narrowing your attention and you're freezing. You're literally standing there, right? And time is passing by because you're hyper-engaged or hyper-focused in the moment. So I think it's actually hijacking a natural physiological response, uh, but it doesn't help. I mean, think about what the purpose of a freeze response is. Purpose of a freeze response is if a giant bear is attacking you like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, uh, you're going to crawl up in a ball because you can't run away from that uh, thing. It's faster than you. Uh, you can't fight it because it's bigger than you. So you can just freeze and you hope that before it just, you know, slashes your neck, uh, that it'll get bored or tired and leave you alone. So that's the freeze response, right? You see like opossums uh, in the middle of the night when you shine a flashlight on it, they just sit there and freeze. Uh, I think we're essentially doing that when we get really stressed and engaged in social media. And that's why you get stuck on it because it's kind of throwing constantly new content at you and, and almost like, hypnotizing you, if you will. I almost think it is a light form of trance, essentially, that we fall into, but it's negative trance, if you will. Um, so the first thing to do, I would say, is to recognize what you do when you get stressed. Do you uh, fight, flight, or freeze? And the the most common is, um, uh, I, the fight is less common. I don't think people are literally getting to fight, but people do get out sort of angry, uh, frustrated, etc. when they get stressed, guys in particular. Uh, the flight is oftentimes we do things to avoid the stress or the emotions. So the first question I would ask you is what are you doing to avoid your stress right now? Are you, for instance, are you drinking? Uh, which is a common thing that guys do to feel, uh, not feel negative emotions, or are you finding any other ways to numb, distract, avoid, uh, that, that kind of chronic stress? Um, and obviously if you are, you know, you got to uh, identify when you're doing it, what your triggers are and start to work away by substituting sort of healthier ways of relaxing and undoing that, that sort of stress response, which we'll talk about in a minute. Or obviously if you're third engaging in the freeze response, recognizing when you're doing that, and it becomes very unconscious because it's very easy to grab our phones out of our pockets uh, the moment that we feel stressed and you're not even noticing that you're, oh, I'm stressed and I'm engaging in a freeze response. 
you just kind of do it without a lot of thought. That's why I obviously uh, advocate and popularize dopamine fasting uh, in order to block out times where you just don't touch your phone. And even when you get the impulse to, you get stressed, you want to engage in the freeze behavior and grab your phone. You're like, look, I'm only checking my phone at pre-scheduled times. Uh, like I try to only check it at like 12, three and eight, for instance, when I'm eating. Um, and then that way I'm not impulsively doing it whenever I feel an emotion, I do it on schedule. And that kind of breaks the addictive conditioning that happens um, that you associate, oh, whenever I'm stressed, I go try to freeze or whenever I'm stressed, I try to avoid that feeling. So uh, that's the first thing that I would say is before you figure out, you know, alternative um, techniques or ways is you got to recognize when you're doing it, uh, what you're doing, and then you can come up with a strategy or plan uh, to do it. But the, the last thing I'll say is essentially, um, uh, I actually really think guys and adult men in particular uh, need to find ways of self-soothing. And I know that it literally sounds like a childlike thing, right? You think about a little kid who's crying or engaging in a temper tantrum. Um, and what does a what does a parent do? They pick them up, they'll kind of hug them, stroke their head, sing to them, you know, hum to them, to kind of like soothe them, literally. That's that's sort of the role of the parent. And the role of the child as he grows into adolescence and adulthood is to not obviously rely on your mom uh, or your dad doing that, but to be able to do that yourself, right? So in a lot of ways, adulthood, in my opinion, is essentially self-parenting. Um, and you need to soothe yourself. And guys, unfortunately, do not learn good ways of doing that that don't involve drugs, alcohol, and devices. Um, and so uh, it is very helpful to learn alternative coping mechanisms. Um, I'm a big fan of meditation. If you're not, if you don't like sitting uh, with your eyes closed, I would recommend actually doing a walking meditation. Walking is actually a really great way of de-stressing and breaking the fight, flight, or freeze response because you're not freezing, you're walking, right? It literally is the opposite of staying still. And so doing that and just having an open awareness, noticing when your thoughts, your stressful thoughts are entering your head, letting them drift by like clouds in a sky, and just paying attention to your surroundings around you, the greenness of the leaves, the, the, the texture of the bark, the children smiling and laughing, what breed of dog just walked by, just noting those things, not lingering on any particular one and just uh, you know being aware and fully present in the moment is a great way of shifting from that fight or flight response to the parasympathetic, what's called the rest and digest response. So I'm a big fan of that. Uh, we just recorded a great episode with Robbie Bent about um, breath work. So it's kind of a more active form of mindfulness where you are focusing on the breath, but you're changing your breath as a way of shifting from sympathetic to parasympathetic dominance. Um, if you're actually interested in trying it out, his website is inwardbreathwork.com. And since you are loyal listeners and followers of Maximus, um, you can get a seven day free trial, check it out. And if you like it, um, use code Maximus30 and you get 30% off their monthly or annual subscriptions. He's a great guy and there's good research uh, behind using breathwork as a way of getting out of that chronic stress, fight or flight mode. Um, alternative things that I've actually found very helpful with clients is find something to do. Um, uh, obviously exercise is great. Um, the only problem with exercise is it's not soothing. Obviously if you're lifting heavy weights, it's great for long-term for chronic stress, but in the moment if you're already chronically stressed, elevating your heart rate and doing hard shit um, doesn't help someone who is like probably has elevated cortisol levels. We know actually exercise acutely 
increases cortisol levels. So you should do that, but it's not the great panacea. You, you need to complement that with uh, more soothing, uh, non-stimulating activities as well. So I actually like doing, uh, encourage, especially like my engineer kind of clients, for them to build things that are away from the computer. Don't, obviously, if you're coding all day, go do some more coding. But you can kind of build Legos, do puzzles, build things with your hands. Um, women obviously do that with sewing, knitting, etc. It's actually a very soothing thing to kind of put something together slowly over time. Uh, and I really do think it actually has psychological benefits. Find a puzzle, for instance, that you like to, to do um, or, or whatever it is that, that it, it you know, does it for you. Um, but that can be incredibly helpful. I also think, um, uh, you know, music can be incredibly soothing as well. So, you know, um, it's useful to sort of have uh, rituals that separate, for instance, work from after work. So after you finish your work in the evening, it's very helpful to like say, look, I'm going to put in a 10 minute buffer zone, which would have been my commute. So one thing you can do is just do an artificial commute of going walking around the block, as we talked about. Um, but I have a client, for instance, who like puts on picks out two to three songs in his playlist, uh, op opens up a can of sparkling water, uh, like lays on his couch, listens to the music, sips the nice grapefruit, you know, spindrift or whatever he's drinking, uh, savors that moment. And then 10 minutes later, he goes on with the rest of his evening. But he finds that buffer in between the stresses of work and then, okay, now I got to go work out or now I got to go out for the evening and eat dinner. It just creates enough of that buffer to just like put him both in a different mindset, both mind and body. Um, so that's a very helpful uh, thing to introduce sort of transition, uh, transition rituals that help you get out of the chronically elevated sort of stress or fight or flight mode. Because the thing is, it's not bad to have stress or cortisol. Like I said, for exercise is a purposely induced stress um, that elevates cortisol, but it's temporary. You want your heart rate, your cortisol to go up when you're exercising and you want it to go down immediately after you're done. You, the problem is with the, the crazy lives and work schedules that we have, we chronically elevate our cortisol so that it's elevated for hours at a time. And that's where, uh, you know, the catabolic effects, it breaks down muscle and obviously uh, has negative effects on our, our, our mind and our brain as well. So uh, you can counteract that. Uh, by using these psychological and behavioral techniques to undo some of the damage, prevent some of the damage, uh, and mitigate some of the damage as well. Thank you for the question about sort of healing traumas. I feel like trauma is actually the second most misused term after toxic these days and age. Everyone considers everything traumatic. So uh, let's talk about what the definition of trauma is. I think I might have alluded to this in a previous episode. The strict... Um, definition in clinical psychology and psychiatry is that trauma, if we're talking about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, is, uh, you know, it has to be a life-threatening situation in which your life was threatened or the life of someone very close to you was threatened. So imagine, obviously, someone going off to war and they're being shot at, obviously a life-threatening situation, or if you saw a buddy or colleague or fellow soldier get shot at, uh, that can also vicariously be uh, traumatizing. That has been the classical definition. Now there may be some, uh, you know, alternative definitions of what a trauma is, but that that's sort of what would constitute uh, a legitimate enough trauma so that you'd qualify for PTSD. Uh, going through college and having, you know, being a pre-med and having stressful exams, as stressful as it may be, and it could actually be very harmful to your health, 
would not constitute a, a trauma uh, and thus you wouldn't meet the criteria for PTSD. Now, maybe that criteria will change in future editions of the DSM, but I actually think it's useful to not overly pathologize things and just like life is hard. There's lots of different ex difficult experiences that you're go going through um, and not everything is a trauma. Um, so I, I do think it's, we, we should have a strict definition of the things that we talked about. So if we're using the strict definition of trauma, which is like I said, like, you know, a uh, life-threatening situation, sexual assault, um, you know, uh, being in an accident, things like that, that are legitimately traumatizing. I would actually recommend a trauma-based therapy. Fortunately, it's one of the things that they've done the most probably research on in psychology in which um, any sort of what's called an exposure-based therapy, um, for instance, exposure, um, like a, a cognitive behavioral therapy, a CBT, cognitive processing therapy, CPT, acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, um, and um, prolonged exposure or PE. Those are all flavors, if you will, of exposure-based therapy. And the basic principle behind it is, let's say you went through a traumatic situation, you got into a terrible car accident, uh, injured you and now every time you hear a honking horn or a smoke see, smell smoke or anything that sort of reminds you or triggers that memory or recollection of the accident elevates your cortisol levels you become very freaked out you almost experience uh, it could be flashbacks you could be experiencing derealization where nothing feels real um, and those are kind of hallmark signs and symptoms of PTSD what you do in sort of a trauma-based therapy is you uh, uh, use what's called imaginal exposure, meaning uh, you expose yourself to the memory in your imagination of going back to that day. You'll tell the story over 20, 30 minutes of what was going on when you were driving, what it was like to get into the accident, what was the aftermath of it, which will elicit some of those trauma reactions, but you're doing it in the safe space and the confines of the therapy. And what will happen over time is this process of habituation or extinction. So for instance, the first time you tell your therapist that story, maybe a nine out of 10 in terms of the anxiety that it elicits. Second time, maybe it'd be a nine, third time, maybe a seven, fourth time, maybe a five, fifth time, maybe a five, sixth time, maybe a four, three, two, and then it may not go away entirely, but you know, to go from a nine to a two or three in terms of the anxiety that it elicits every time that you see a car, uh, will, you know, lower the anxiety enough that you can be functional and obviously continue to drive, continue to get into a taxi or Uber, and live the life that you want to live if you've been avoiding all of those things because of the trauma or the PTSD that you develop. So it's hard work. It's kind of painful work because uh, you have to approach things that you've literally been avoiding because of the PTSD. But the good news is it works tremendously well. So if there's anyone listening to this and you feel like you have the potential for PTSD because of you know you meet the criteria for the trauma that I discussed, it's useful to go to a psychologist or psychiatrist that's well versed in. Uh, an exposure-based trauma therapy, get a legitimate diagnosis, and then do the treatment. You can get remarkably better in eight to 12 weeks, I would say. I used to work in the VA hospitals with soldiers spanning from the Vietnam, Korean, Af Afghanistan wars who went through some shit. And um, uh, it's not easy to deal with, but people do get remarkably better if you're willing to do the work. So so um, trauma is not uh, does not have to be a chronic uh, condition. It's only a chronic condition if you treat it like a wound and you never clean it. And it festers and becomes infected. But just like most, you know, infections can be cleared out with a good course of antibiotics, a good course of exposure-based therapy, 
uh, can, can heal you up right quick? That's a great question. Um, this is a kind of an interesting psychosomatic question. So the question is, um, can a, a trauma or potentially a PTSD induce an autoimmune condition? Um, I have actually never heard of that. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of literature on that. It, it seems like a pretty rare occurrence. Um, I've never sort of clinically uh, heard of that. A, because like uh, autoimmune, like true autoimmune conditions are rare, but then the overlap between PTSD and autoimmune conditions um, is going to be even even less common. And then to make a definitive link between the two, there are a lot of people who are sick with a lot of psychological and medical conditions. So you can have comorbidities, but to say that like one caused the other um, is is difficult to establish. So maybe there's some case reports out there. I'll, I'm actually kind of curious. I'll probably after the show do a little bit of research to see if there's anything that's published out there. But I, I wouldn't say I've heard of that or it's a common sort of theory. Now, the is it plausible? Um, look, anything is possible um, as long as the pathophysiology makes sense. Um, in this particular case, could it be plausible? Maybe. In fact, I mean, I, I did my graduate research on short, short um, showing the link between um, mind, body, and immune system, right? So I was doing um, uh, graduate dissertation work showing the link between positive emotions and pro-inflammatory cytokines. So these are markers like IL-6, IL-1 beta that are, are responsible for inflammation and are markers of our immune function. So um, is it possible that if someone's having a lot of trauma or PTSD, you're seeing an alteration in immune function? Uh, yes, it's possible. There's a lot of um, uh, research that professors like Sheldon Cohen, I believe at University of Pittsburgh have done that show that chronic stress, if you kind of use that as a proxy for trauma, um, is immunosuppressive. So we know that when you stress people out, they're much more likely to get, for instance, a common cold. In fact, funnily, they did research where they would literally like take people who are not stressed and stressed, like squirt some, you know, a rhinovirus, the common cold up their nose and see which ones would, would get it. And obviously the stressed people will get more colds. I don't know how they get approval to these studies because I've never want to risk getting a common cold for any particular reason, but they did show that it happens. And so um, that now that's a different condition and that's a different situation in terms of suppressing the immune system which naturally happens whenever you're stressed or don't get enough sleep versus developing an autoimmune decision uh, uh condition now is it possible that immunosuppression could cause the immune system to go haywire uh, and do that i don't know uh it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibility um but I, I think it's a tricky thing to establish causality i think if you suspect that though um you know, you, and you obviously have legitimate trauma, it, it may be an interesting thing to like, look, you should go, if you have legitimate trauma, go do the trauma work anyway to alleviate it. They, they commented, uh, at least to my knowledge, I struggled with autoimmune disease that affected my skin because mm -hmm. uh, uh, this person saying that her parents or his parents passed. Yeah. Um, well, it'd be interesting to see if that, if you, if you do the work around that, whether it's, uh, you know, grieving work to if you're if it's that kind of bereavement associated trauma um, or otherwise to see if it improves your autoimmune and your skin condition. Um, and then maybe, you know, I don't know if it's it's true for the world, but if it's true for you, uh, then that's all you need in terms of evidence. There is some work that John Kabat-Zinn did in terms of um, MBSR. You can look up mindfulness based stress reduction. Um, and there's some research that shows that that, which is, you know, is a program, 12 weeks, it combines meditation, yoga, 
and other mindfulness-based practices helps people with skin conditions, including psoriasis. I don't know if that's your particular skin condition, but it does establish the fact that things that enhance uh, you know, the immune system by reducing the um, load of, of chronic stress can improve the immune system, in fact, can improve skin conditions particularly. So uh, if, you're, if you're willing and able to do that, I don't think there's a lot of downside to doing MBSR. Um, it's not a drug that has a bunch of side effects and it's probably good for people to do meditation yoga anyway. You can just try it and see if it helps your skin uh, and it helps your immune system. Um, so I, I would just keep an open mind, try an evidence-based thing and, uh, uh, and see if it works for you. What are some of the best ways to improve a destructive level of forgetfulness and inability to remain personally consistent for long periods of time, i.e. consistent exercise? So why don't we tackle these one things at a time? I, I'm actually curious if you can type in um, why do you think you're forgetful? Um, can you give me some examples of that? Um, and why do you think it's destructive? Like, were you always forgetful? Is this something that's developed more recently? Um, it's kind of useful for me to understand what's going on there. Um, cause I would say it depends on, on what you're experiencing, right? Like if you're really having like memory issues, you may want to go talk to your doctor about it. Uh, you know, especially if it's been a, a sudden or acute change. Now, if you've always been forgetful, who knows what's going on? You, you may have some cognitive issues. Maybe you have some short-term working memory issues that may result from an ADHD or learning disorder that you need to sort of go get assessed. Um, but if it's been a sudden acute change, uh, then, you know, that's potentially worrisome and you should go talk to your doctor about it. So that's why I think it matters if it's like a recent development or a sort, of, sort of been a long-term issue. Um, but so I would say, you know, make sure you get a proper workup and understand what's causing the impairment, uh, in your memory, especially if it's like everyone forgets their keys and, and the forgets to do things all the time, but you're, you're talking about a destructive level. So I'm going to take you at your word that it's causing significant, either distress or impairment in your life, which would meet sort of the DSM criteria for, um, you know, an issue. An exercise example, I think it's more of a following a proper routine for a certain level of time and then after a time passes, not following through. Okay, so in that case, I don't sound like a working memory issue to me in terms of you're literally forgetting. I think you're just not sticking to a consistent uh, habit or behavior routine. Um, why do you think that is? Like in, in your experience when you're doing an exercise routine for two days, what causes you to drop it on the third day? So this person's saying, well, it goes further to the home as well. Numerous ma massive arguments with the wife for not following through on a commitment. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think there's a couple things that you can do is I, I, I would try to analyze uh, or take one of those situations. If you're willing to talk about the exercise one, like what causes you to drop off, you know, your routine. Um, I wonder if you're, you're, the way that you're structuring it is unrealistic someone's saying I'm going to work out six days a week, uh, and they're, they're not doing it. You may want to temper your goals. Cause I, I don't think it's useful to consistently miss, um, your goals. That's why when I work with clients, I have them almost like eventually over time calibrate to the level that they're willing and able to do. I think it's great if you can work out six days a week for most people, it's realistic to work out three days a week. Right. And so what's going to happen is you might start with six, you fail the first week, you're doing one day a week. And I'm like, okay, you're, you're, you're not, you're not close to there. Now, if you were doing five days a week, I'd say, okay, it's feasible. You're almost within reach of your goal. We can keep that goal. But if you're doing, uh, if you set a goal of six days a week, you're only doing one days a week, I would rapidly change your goal and say, look, 
Next week, we're going to attempt three days a week. Something that you feel, if I ask you on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you that you're going to achieve this goal next week? You should basically be saying, this is an eight or nine out of 10 in terms of confidence. Because if you're not that confident, the goal is too lofty for your current state um, of ambition. So it sounds like in your case, uh, you're trying to say it's sustainable. You stick to it for one to two months, but it loses steam. Well, I would argue it's not sustainable. Uh, it, it sounds like it's sustainable for one to two months, but what's happening after one to two months? Are you getting bored? What does losing steam sort of mean? I think you need to change up what you're doing. If, you, if it's a, a, a boredom, then you need to introduce some variety into your routine where you change it after every one or two months, or you need to change the format in which let's say you're doing it with a group, with other people in a class, uh, so that you're not getting bored. Um, some people, it is it is like a boring thing. Other people, they don't need to be entertained. They can do the same shit every single day. So if you're kind of one of those people, um, then I think you need to change what you're doing uh, and find something that you're not going to lose whatever steam means to you, boredom, etc. cetera, uh, after one to two months. And um, so you, you may need to like practice some behavioral flexibility and finding um, you know something that you're not gonna sort of get distracted after one to two months. The, the other thing is like things that you uh, uh, forget for at home um, for not following through on commitments. The first thing I would ask is what's your system for remembering things? I think the biggest mistake that people make is they rely on their working memory. And if you look, if you aren't great in terms of your working memory, why are you relying on your brain uh, if it's distracted or easily forgets things and you're hoping that it'll somehow turn things around? Um, you need to keep a little notepad. They sell these little pocket-sized notepads in your pocket. Uh, you could use your phone and the notepad app on your phone, uh, but you need to do something where as soon as you have a commitment or your wife asks you to do something or you want to remember something, you write it down immediately. Immediately, you need to get it out of your brain, out of your mind, and you need to get it written down. And you need a system for checking it because there's no point of writing it down if you never go look at that note notepad again. So you need to come up with a system. I use the Keystone habit. You can look it up. I'll post it in the show notes afterwards in which uh, uh, you know, a couple times a day, you're checking that list and saying, okay, what is it that I need to do? Uh, when am I going to do it? Am I going to schedule it? Because uh, that's the most important thing. Um, and then if I don't do it, what caused me to not do it? What can I do differently this time? So um, I, I think there's a lot you can do, even if you legitimately have a memory impairment in terms of forgetfulness to make up for it. And this is literally what they teach patients with dementia or cognitive impairment is you can use external tools, resources, etc., to make up for it. We don't need to rely on our brain. We don't need to remember facts when you got Google. That's why I'm actually a, a fan of sort of open book tests. Like I don't see the point of memorizing everything. Um, so I, I do think it's useful to, you know, rely on sort of these external tools to help with sort of this memory, uh, you know, impairment. So, you know, you, you brought up this example, right? About, I write these things down. My, my wife got accepted on a family trip because I forgot to bring a suitcase. We left with the rest of the fam because we left early. Uh, I, I, I would wonder though, if you actually wrote that thing down. So you, you may not think that little things are worth writing down. That's the mistake that most people make. They put the grand ambitious things like, oh, okay, I got to do my taxes before April 15th. But you need to, you know, when people travel, they forget their toothbrush and things like that because they don't keep meticulous checklists. So, um, you know, if, if that's something that you need to write down, then you got to write down. Now, there may be some things that you don't anticipate, right? Maybe you legitimately forgot that suitcase, et cetera. Um, 
But the more that you kind of do these things, I think it generally helps. Um, and look, you're going to forget some shit every once in a while. Um, and you, you probably just got to live with that, like I said, unless you have some sort of organic issue. Um, but I do think that 80% of it can be improved, I would say, if you become a lot more meticulous about writing things down constantly and getting it off your brain, especially if you know that there's a likelihood that you're going to forget it. Like if you know you're forgetful, what you should do is like when you go on a trip, you'd be like, what do I need to remember to bring? Wallet, keys, suitcase, etc. And I'm going to double check that before I leave the hotel room every single time. It may sound like overkill, but it's going to save you a lot of heartache when you leave your random luggage somewhere. So anyway, that's my advice on that. Thank you for the question. Uh, and thank you for a great show. It's fun, fun span of questions, uh, spanning sort of psychology, immunology, neurology. Um, so always fun things to talk about. If you have any questions that you'd like me to answer for next week's show, uh, please submit it through our social media channels, um, especially Discord or Twitter. Um, and I will catch you all next week.